When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanna live outside, live outside of all of this. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your regular host. Sorry for the little hiatus. We went on without an explanation over the past couple months. Uh, As you can imagine, being a full-time clinician and working as the Director of Medical Education for Online MedEd full-time has left me unable to devote the time that I should be to inside the boards. But my life has kind of simplified, cleared up some family issues and challenges, including Elizabeth, who you have heard on this podcast before, and my wife, who's been living in Cincinnati with our two-year-old son. I'm up in Cleveland. She was finishing up her residency and uh, even had lived there while I was in St. Louis for the military. Thankfully, as of now, she is done with her residency and moved on to a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry, and importantly, actually lives in our home, which makes things so much easier as far as work-life balance goes. So we hope to bring you a little more consistency and content, uh, at least getting an episode out every two weeks on this main channel. We are going to have some episodes from our audio blog series in partnership with our friends at Med School Tutors, covering not only the uh, practice question breakdowns, but more practical advice and lifestyle kind of stuff that will help you with building resilience and, and things of that nature. As well, we'll be releasing our Step 1 post-mortem series with Stuart Bryant, our producer and co-host, covering what he learned, what he did, what he would do differently, and what he wishes he had known before going into his dedicated study prep time. Uh, So that should be a useful resource for you, especially second years looking to plan your year ahead. Uh, We're probably going to put that up over the next month as well. So look for it. And then don't forget about our Study Smarter series channel on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. We'd originally conceived this as a step one focused channel, but we've decided to move it to a more like hardcore, super question focused podcast channel. So we're planning to do a little bit on each of the required clerkships from November through January. We'll also put up some examples from our All Audio QBank. Hopefully have the app out by January 1st. It's looking like we'll meet that deadline. You can access the beta version of the Audio QBank by going to our website, insidetheboards.com, and selecting the Audio QBank link there. 
It's a little wonky to access the content, but for those of you who have purchased a subscription, we thank you for the support. And we would ask if you like what we're doing with the Inside the Boards podcast, please consider purchasing a subscription to the beta version. You'll get access to the app once we release it, which will make the content access much more user-friendly. But for now, you can sign up, get access at a discount for a longer time period, and help support our continued efforts at building Inside the Boards as a platform to help you learn the how of taking a medical school standardized exam. The Audio Bank does feature content from online meded for the step two and clinical material and the preclinical basic sciences stuff is covered by our friends at Lecturio and Osmosis, insidetheboards.com, or click the link in the show notes. Today's interview is with Dr. Wendell Cole. He is a fellow podcaster. You can find his show at Convos with Cole. But for today, we have him on to discuss his book, The Med School Survival Kit, how to breeze through med school while crushing your exams. So we'll get into that right after we cover a high-yield practice question. If you want to win a free copy of the book, just share this episode on social media, tagging I am Dr. Cole across Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and tag us as well. I am at Boards Insider on Twitter, and we are at Inside the Boards on Facebook and Instagram. Deadline is November 1st, so we'll put you in the the drawing for a free copy if you submit by then. Thank you for listening, and here you go, my interview with Dr. Wendell Cole. Welcome, Dr. Wendell Cole, to the Inside the Boards podcast. You are a fellow podcaster, but as much as could be said about you that I could list and read from the bios on many web presences that you have, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, yes. Well, hello, everybody. I hope everybody's day is going well. Uh, my name is Wendell Cole. Now, it's weird, but at, at the end of that name, it says MD. So uh, I'm actually a doctor. Uh, and I am a current orthopedic surgery intern. Uh, I'm, I'm about three weeks into it. I graduated from Morehouse School of Medicine um, earlier this year. And before that, I graduated from Georgia State University. And uh, I kind of do a lot of things. Um, just yeah, like, you do. Yeah, just like our host here is saying, uh, I've, I've done podcasts as well and some business as well. And, you know, we'll kind of touch on a couple different things here today. But I'm 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 excited to be on the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I look forward for this being a good show. Absolutely. And I would just say, um, yes, we are going to touch on all of those things. Um, and before we do that, we'll do our usual kind of didactic portion of the show here. Sounds good. Let's get into this. So the first one that we have, question-wise, is from our friends at Online MedEd. We have a 63-year-old male who comes to the urgent care clinic with a swollen great toe. He banged it last night on his nightstand, and it didn't bother him until this morning when he noticed it was swollen, erythematous, and exquisitely tender to the point where he cannot put any pressure on it. His past medical history is positive for hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. His his vitals include a temperature of 102.2 Fahrenheit, a blood pressure of 160 over 90, 
heart rate of 97 and a normal respiratory rate. Physical exam demonstrates an inflamed great toe that is exquisitely tender. X-ray shows no fracture. His uric acid level is 9. What is the best next step in the management of this patient? All right, so the options we have here are A, prednisone, B, ibuprofen, C, probenicid, and D, allopurinol. I love this this presentation. I saw something almost exactly the exact same last night yeah. when I was on call. So, uh, yeah, we can, we can go through this. Well, you are our resident expert in approaching questions, uh, mainly related to your book that we'll be discussing, The Med School Survival Kit, How to Breeze Through Medical School. When you are sitting in the examination center and you're approached with something like this, um, what's your process? All right. So what I would typically tend to do is read the last sentence and the answer choices first. Um, So here in in this example, you know, the the answer is what's the next best step in management of this patient? And then we quickly skim over the the answer choices. We see prednisone, ibuprofen, allopurinol, absence from uh, probenicid. And in our minds, we start to think, okay, like, what are these like where kind of where is this question going at? So there's already anti-inflammatories uh, in the in the answer choice as well as steroids and allopurinol, which is typical for gout. So these already kind of look like gouty type answers. And it's saying what the next best step in management is of this patient. So we know that there are some drugs that you give for acute gout versus drugs that you give for um, maintenance in gout, right? Yep. So from there, um, we can go ahead and start to read the question with that endpoint in mind, knowing that we're going to have to separate the two. Right. So if we go in and we, we look at the question, 63 year old male comes to the urgent care clinic with a uh, swollen great toe banged it last night on a nightstand. So this is being less than a day that this has really happened. It's all acute. Um, Exactly. Everything's acute. This morning, swollen erythematous, exquisitely tender to the point you cannot put pressure on it. And uh, I actually love that because yesterday um, you can actually like even if you just just barely touch still almost like jump out of the bed because it hurts so bad. Um, So he has a history of hypertension, diabetes, obesity, temperature, um, blood pressure is a little high, heart rate at 97, respiration is 18. So already in our mind, we should be thinking that this is something very acutely um, because of the time period. And you see that physical exam has a great toe that is exquisitely tender, no fracture. And then it even gives you that the uric acid level is nine, which is a little bit higher. So from this, while we're reading through this entire question, we should be going, okay, what's our most likely diagnosis? And then how we nextly manage this patient? And so from going through this, we can come up with a diagnosis of acute gout. So then we think, all right, well, how are we going to manage this patient acutely? How are we going to get rid of these acute symptoms? That's a big thing here. And if we look at our answer choices, uh, we have prednisone, which isn't which isn't the first first line for an acute gout flare. We have an NSAID um, and we have some other some other drugs, you know, like LP and all is used for um, used for maintenance as well. So basically, this question is asking, 
what is the acute treatment for gout? And once you've teased out what the question's asking, you can then look and see that high dose of NSAIDs is a treatment for acute gout. So that's how you go with ibuprofen for your answer. All right. So one of the things uh, with this, uh, with gout, um, I always think, uh, yeah, NSAIDs for the pain that's occurring right now in this acute period or colchicine. Um, and if I guess what I would ask, uh, in your opinion, what if this question did have NSAIDs, colchicine, allopurinol, and probenicid, and say prednisone is answer choices? How would you choose between colchicine and NSAIDs? Or do you think that that is just an unfair question the boards probably won't make you decide between? Because that's what uh, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I think too. Because that that's very that's a that's a very unfair question to put both of those in a choices. So I would, in that case, I'd probably go with colchicine if you are forced to pick between NSAIDs or colchicine for the treatment of an acute gout flare. Now, you know the trouble with colchicine is that it, it was like patented after it was in use for a while, so it's not really cost effective for the for the patient, right? You know, even though it's a very effective in treating an acute gout flare, I'd go with an NSAID, high dose of an NSAID. But if it says uh, colchicine, then make that choice. But that is the reason behind why colchicine isn't necessarily used all the time. All right. So NSAIDs have taken over as, as the more cost-effective treatment. Um, I guess one way the boards could do something like this, if they wanted to test your knowledge of a distinction between the efficacy of NSAIDs and colchicine, they could change up the interrogatory to something like, what is the most effective uh, treatment in the management of this patient's disease? And then if you had colchicine, ibuprofen, and uh, other choices, you'd probably pick colchicine because it's right. a bit more effective. But they're probably not going to do that to you. That would be my guess. And when it comes to fine points of distinction like that, in my mind, part of studying for boards and learning medicine is um, knowing yourself as well as knowing what you don't know. And for me, knowing myself, there are a few topics where I'm like, you know what, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because I've done it before and it doesn't get through. So I'm going to focus my energy on studying things that I know that I can master and internalize and take with me on test day rather than, you know, putting them on note cards and remembering some facts, which will leave my mind within a week at most. One of those would probably be a fine distinction between a medicine that's 90% effective and 98% effective at uh, treating a particular condition. So I wouldn't sweat it too much and worry like, oh man, what if it's NSAIDs versus colchicine or mm -hmm. the hundred other analogous ways this sort of dilemma would show up on a, on a board exam. I guess some other points about gout worth noting before we get into the, the meat of our uh, conversation today would be just to look at the other answer choices. Prednisone, I think you can just kind of mark off as, nah, that's not going to be used in an acute uh, flare on the boards, although in real life it, it would make sense. And the reason for that is, is basically it's going to be third line after NSAIDs, after colchicine, prednisone right. would be for acute. But the important point is what you mentioned before. You got acute gout, you've got chronic gout, the management, the drugs are a little bit different. So in the chronic state of things, the choices for medications are allopurinol and probenicid. 
I guess the high yield point here would be that allopurinol is going to be the drug of choice for controlling gout flares in the long term and the sort of thing that you would use if somebody has two or more attacks in a single year. Right. Anything to add? Uh, no, I mean, this is this is literally, well, on the drugs, no, not, not, not necessarily. I was just going to make a note of this is like literally the classic presentation of how gout is like even if you pay attention to where you know where the uh where the inflammation or where the problem is in the great tail like this is classic gout well we could do a lot more of these but uh, i don't want to take too much of your time and there are many more high yield things we can learn from your <laughs> wisdom here so let's talk about you why are you a doctor today Actually, why are you a doctor only for the past uh, month or so now? What uh, brought you to this point in your life? Man, it's a uh, it's a confluence of a lot of different things. You know, it's, it was weird. I was actually looking through some of my old things the other day, and I found like a journal that I had when I was about seven, eight years old. And it was one of those old school journals, you know, that would kind of prompt you to write, write things in there like, oh, my best friends are this, this, this. <laughs> And there was a section that said what I want to be when I grow up. And I wrote in there, doctor. And I was like, dang, I was, I was seven or eight years old. And I, and I, I wanted to be a doctor. And now to see that that actually happened is pretty cool. Did that but, uh, dream persist or did it change? And you just kind of uh, went back to it at some point. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I always had in the back of my mind that I, that I wanted to do medicine and, and be a doctor. Um, but there are times where I, I tried some other things along with it, but my main goal was to be a doctor. You know, I, I did a little bit of business in, uh, in undergrad. I had like a little startup business and then actually through med school, uh, you know, a friend and I opened some real estate businesses. I always love medicine. It's very rewarding, but I also enjoy doing other things as well, which can sometimes be, be a taboo. But um, I, I've, I've a lot of times medicine. be a taboo if you're in medicine, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But medicine doesn't tolerate dissenters in its midst very well. That's true. All right. So when you were a fourth year, you decided that you'd learned a few things that would be beneficial for your fellow medical students. You ended up writing a book. Did. Tell me I about this. I ended up books. doing that. So how it, how it started was that through med school, I would be doing a lot, right? I would be that that out of the box med student. I would be traveling a lot. I would be doing a lot of like I just said. I, me and uh, some classmates opened up a business. I used to do network marketing, so I did a lot of things. And my classmates kind of took note of that, and and other people, and everybody's like, "How are you doing this while you're in med school?" There's there's no way. Like I had people that told me I wasn't in med school. <laughs> like I had people that told me that, uh, and what. I realized is that, you know, sometimes this is called the 80-20 rule, right? So you find out the you find the 20% of things that produce 80% of the outcome and you kind of just hone in on that. And those are things that I've been able to do throughout the years. And then I, I really sat back and picked out um, a lot of the things that I thought that would have helped me beforehand going through this, things that, that would have made it a lot easier for me, things that would have saved time for me and things that definitely would have saved a headache for me. And I wanted to I'll put it in a book as well as make it a lot easier for people to kind of go through med school. Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you think about 
entering med school, at least I know when I did, I was like, man, I'm about to be in the dark ages for a couple of years. You know, nobody's going to know my name. I'm just going to be studying and I'm going to come out. I'm going to look like I'm 58 and, and, uh, and, and I'm not going to be recognizable when, you know, that's, that's not necessarily uh, the truth. There's a, there's a way you can actually get through med school and enjoy it and do all the things you still wanted to do or would do if you weren't in med school. So yeah, that kind of prompted me to write it. I mean, I, I'm telling you that that is a realization, you, you, that 80-20 rule, uh, Pareto's law. Um, it's the, I, I think so few people really uh, want to trust that kind of idea, um, but it can be a true lifesaver in terms of having balance in your life and ending med school with some of your dignity, humanity, and <laughs> idealism and your relationship uh, yeah. uh, relationships, you know, intact. So that's really good. I, I see, uh, from what I've read in, in the book, um, uh, it seems that that is sort of like the unifying principle, uh, of what you wrote, um, right. to, to take what's efficient and put your energy, um, where you will get the most output, uh, from it. And, and I wrote a, a blog post or an article for student doctor network, uh, outlining kind of my own, um, evaluation and how I used that principle in medical school. Um, but with you, what are some practical things? How did this kind of take shape? Let's say in the first two years of medical school, as many of our listeners are probably into at this point, how did you find that 20% that would give you 80% of your output? Coming into med school, I was juggling, you know, doing a startup business along with med school, right? So there'd be times where I would have to be very efficient in how I use my time, right? So for example, I remember the first couple months, my, my schedule would be like class and then during lunch, I'd go to some some startup meeting and pitch some idea. And then after that, I'd come back and we'd do anatomy lab and then and I go home and work out and then I'll study and then I'll do some business things. But what made it efficient was that I said, OK, today med school gets three hours of my time, for example. So from five to eight, I'm focusing on nothing else but medical school. So I'm not really focusing on social media. So I'm not taking like two or three minutes here and there to go. I'm like, oh, man, there's, I forgot to do this one thing in business or I forgot to do this other thing with my friend or whatever. I was solely focused on studying yeah so you're like saying nothing else took my attention away from it <laughs> so you're saying the the kind of modern multitasking where you're uh studying while listening to a podcast um posting to one or two social media accounts texting your friends uh <laughs> and doing some uh practice questions is maybe not the most efficient way to get the optimal output that you need to be successful in medicine yeah, so a lot of that was a leading a question, but <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't if you couldn't pick that up there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so a lot of times we we seem to think that multitasking will make us more productive, when in the long run it kind of slows us down, right? Um, I love this analogy this guy this, this guy by the name of Tim Ferriss has, and he he preaches doing a lot of batch processing, right? So if you're doing something, doing a lot of it at one time and solely focusing on that will make you more productive. And I think the example that he gave was, you know, when you have laundry, right, and you have socks, you don't 
you don't just have a little bit of um you don't you just don't do like one or two socks and, and you throw it in the washer to do it to wash you wait till it fills up and then you wash it because there you're being more productive doing that one thing focusing on all those things at one time so if you kind of take that same mentality into med school and studying and you set aside time you know for example you may be studying for like an hour and after that hour you set aside like 10 minutes to go and talk to your friends and and do that and you're just focusing on that that you you'll find out that it's a lot more um productive and when you tend to combine the two or the three or the the eight things like you're kind of mentioning coming up to this question you tend to realize that you are kind of halting your productivity and your effectiveness and you're just you want to you do that just think that you're being busy but you're actually not using your time wisely so looking at uh, your uh, summary for the book the cover um, says forget the old saying that you can't excel in medical school and have a social life at the same time now, if I'm a med student facing like an onslaught of biochemistry, I'm thinking, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. I'd like to know <laughs> that because you say you can. It's time to study smarter, save countless hours and crush your exams, but also to have a life and match into the residency program of your choice. It seems to me that a lot of um, the advice you give here is about creating fences or, or boundaries around your time or the sorts of categories of um, attention that you need to allocate in life to be kind of a flourishing human being. Is it as simple as that? Well, it's that plus a plus a lot of other things, right? It's uh, it's that plus going over kind of like how to study different tricks that that work and and helping you, for example, even memorize some things or before you are going through questions or before you're reading a subject, how what should you kind of be looking for when you're going through subjects, right? When you're when you're about to uh, start studying, how how should you approach looking at questions? How should you approach understanding information? What are some good resources? Because that was one of the things that I had to figure out. What are good sites to use that help explain the information that I want to know very concisely, but also very well to the level that I need to understand it for the exams? So uh, there's that, and there's a whole bunch of random productivity tips in there. And there's it's not just purely about academics. There's some chapters on relationships. There's some chapters on writing personal statements. So I, I tried to touch pretty much everything. Of and the time commitment for this book is only about what, two and a half, three hours? It's a quick read. I didn't want to make an entire novel. Another big med school book. War and Peace for uh, med school. That uh, that might be a little intimidating. Well, let's talk about this then, because it touches on a few of the, the different things you mentioned. Chapter three is the art of studying. The first component of that, you talk about note taking and you give the advice when you're going through a, a PowerPoint or lecture, only take notes on topics that you do not understand. That advice to me seems obvious, but is that what people do or no? You know, when I used to kind of go, when I came into med school in undergrad, you know, you'd have PowerPoints and I used to think I was studying very effectively by jotting everything that's in the PowerPoints pretty much right down to my paper and going back and reviewing what I what I wrote down on my paper. If, if you looked at my paper and you looked at the slides, you could kind of see almost exactly where I got that from. My point for this was, number one, of course, don't take notes on things you truly don't understand. But when you take notes, don't just have it exactly like the PowerPoint. The point is to come up with 
a creative process in your brain of how you interpret the information and then use that to make your notes, right? So is there a practical kind of way to to explain this over uh, the podcast uh, for the students who might have to attend lectures as part of their uh, curriculum? Yeah, so I think the the way to go about it would be as to how are you going to like if you had to have this subject or know this, how could you teach this to a friend in in a way that makes sense to you? Right. So what's an example we can uh, we can randomly use? How about an hour long, an hour long lecture on um, gout drugs? <laughs> what I may do is I, I'm also a person. I, I like storytelling as a way to remember things. So if the note just says you use this, 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 uh, this is for acute. This is for long term. This is for that. And then you, you talk about the presentation of gout. I may think of it and then come up with my own terms, how I explain it to somebody. So I may come up with a story in my notes. I would probably say something along the lines of I would make up a patient in my head and I would write that down. Right. So, hey, I'm looking at somebody I know. Say I'm looking at I have Patrick. He's, you know, 46 year old guy. 33. <laughs> Good. Th- thanks for that uh, distinction right there. But I'd say uh, Patrick came in to speak to me. Uh, I noticed he had some big toe swelling and he had other things pretty much similar with the gout. Big toe swelling is super painful for the touch. And he was asking me for some advice. And there, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about it. But I would draw maybe a bottle of NSAIDs or I would maybe draw like a little thing of aspirin that I would put and have it first in the line of things. And after that, I may actually, now that I think about it, I have, a, I have a great example. I was just doing this the other day. Yeah. So I was reading boring basic science orthopedic things on how different bones are formed and how they work and, and bone healing. And I came up with a story in my mind, right? So you have like different osteoclasts, osteoblasts, and and how all these different things work. And when I was coming up with it, I made little stick figures, and I had made stick figures of a guy that was blasting things that signified an osteoblast. And I made another stick figure of a guy who had little sores who who remind me of like something that was clasping something. Like to me, it just it signified an osteoclast. And what I did was I use these and I, and I made storylines among it, right? So osteoclasts are typically the type of uh, bone cells that resorb things. So I had these stick figures with like little sores that were tearing down what was, what was bone. So that reminded me that, okay, osteoclasts are tearing down bones and on different parts of they, their body, they had different things that reminded me of different aspects like integrins. Like I, I made his foot looked like something sticky. So I remember that an integrin attaches to somewhere on the bone in order to begin uh, this process. Those are just the, just the different types of things. Creating a story. So now when I'm reading through it, to me, it's funny because I, I made myself a funny story here and it's not necessarily as taxing as it would be for when I would be, you know, kind of reading through a lot of just like a boring textbook. I made look like little funny stories of of how bone resorption and, and bone healing occurs. 
Yeah, and I see like uh, in the book throughout the the practical advice on like how to take notes. You've got a few methods here, and one of them is the storytelling and pictures, where you uh, give an example of how to remember Takayasu arteritis. There's there's a bunch of others uh, within the the text as well, and you even in that chapter three on um, the art of uh, studying, go through a few practice questions on things like vitamin deficiency slash Crohn's disease. Uh, give advice practically on how many questions people should do. From my perspective, my favorite thing that you have in this uh, this particular chapter are the, the takeaway points. Here are the first three. Number one, do practice questions. Do them early. It's the best way to test the concept. Number two, do questions. And then number three, <laughs> did I mention doing practice questions? Like that is that is basically what Inside the Boards is uh, uh, preaching because some of us not being as uh, quick at the draw as others, it took you know them 18 months to realize they should be doing practice questions. And then once I actually did realize that, I was like, wow, this is an incredibly more engaging way to learn. And right. I do way better on exams when I focus on learning to assimilate the information in a way that is amenable to it being asked on an exam. And that's something you can learn, but you have to do questions, questions, questions to increase your facility with that skill. Exactly. I totally agree. I wish I would have. It seems so so uh, obvious. Like Exactly. It seems <laughs> right? so obvious. Like, oh, maybe if I don't I should test to whether or not I know a concept. Maybe I should do some questions on it. But I don't think in undergrad, like, you generally do a bunch of questions. You generally just look over the material and then do maybe one or two practice tests and then just kind of go and get the exam. But here, it's so much more like it seems so much more important to get that under the belt because now it's just not about knowing the facts. It's about how you apply those facts in treating patients or in diagnosing or even in basic science. It's all about how you apply what you've learned. So it's a little bit different. Well, let me ask you a personal question. What's your biggest test-taking failure in, in any sense, whether it's you actually did not pass the exam or you studied wrong and got a significantly lower score, anything like that? What's your biggest test-taking failure and um, what did you learn from it? Um, that's, that's a good question. I'm thinking this may, this may go back to the MCAT days, right? Yeah. When I, when I took the MCAT, I ended up getting an average score basically because my science has kind of helped me up and my verbal was very low, right? So this is back when MCAT was three sections and each section was uh, was one to 15 points. The good old days. Exactly, right? Now there's like a whole bunch of sections. It's like on a scale of 500 or something. It's weird. I don't understand it. Neither. <laughs> but, but so back to this and I remember, I think I got like a, a 10 in bio biology, like 11 in physics and I think I got about a six or so in verbal. I did, did really poorly in the verbal score. Oh, nice. I got, I got a seven in physical sciences um, both times I took the MCAT. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's my weak <laughs> point right there. Yeah. And I remember coming into med school and I, I remember I got accepted and I was really happy. And then going into med school and I knew that a step one exam would be coming soon. And it's another standardized test that's like the m most important test you were gonna, we're going to take. And back in my mind, I was like, all right, I need, I know I need to kind of do a little bit more because my verbal score is really low and, and there's going to be super long question stems that you're going to have to go through and you're going to have to get a good foundation of just semantics and how words are used. 
And I used that to, it's not necessarily, I guess you could say a failure, but it's it's something where I, I did not up to the standard that I wanted to do. And how I dealt with it was that I just looked in and assessed the situation. I said, this is something I need to work on. And I just went and did it. I, I really think it's as simple as that. I think it's as simple as if you fail a test, you go back and you look, well, what did I do wrong? It's not that I'm dumb. It's not that I, I'm the slow person. It's just literally I look back and something I have been doing has not been effective. I try to tease out what that one thing is and then give it a try all the other things. And if that's not it, keep teasing things out until you find out, well, what are the things that are helping me learn this information the best? Do I learn it best when I'm sitting here listening to audio along with reading it? Do I learn it best if I'm doing a bunch of questions? Do I learn it best if I just read it by myself or if I just watch a video on it? Find out whatever it is and kind of hone in on that and, and maximize using using that outlet to get back to you know whatever score you want or whatever you're trying to overcome. Did you split test your uh, study methods in first or second year? Yeah, I think the first year I might have done a little bit of a shotgun approach. I really think first year is just about finding what works for you. And I realized that hearing it more than one time from different sources and different ways worked for me. Right. So for me, I was I was big into videos and I, I think I liked videos because it's like a passive kind of way of studying and you don't have to like study, study. It's more to me. It was more, OK, I could at least watch this video and say that I studied. And I watched different videos and saw how different people explain different things. And then I realized once I got to the point where I could explain a certain subject to somebody else, and that's truly mastery. So with each subject or with with each topic, my goal was to be able to explain it to somebody else without using my notes. So whatever I needed to do in order to get that down, that's how I knew I knew the question or knew knew the topic. So I remember when I was studying for step two with uh, with one of my really super smart friends. We would go up and literally talk about a topic and we would just ask a million and one questions, ask why this, why that, and literally just keep going until you cannot exhaust yourself anymore about that topic and you're and you and it's gotten drilled into you. So that's one of the things I found that worked pretty well uh, is also. All right. Well, I mean, there is so much we could get into uh, with this book and what you've done here. But why why should people purchase this? Why should they uh, drop fifteen bucks or buy it on their uh, Kindle Unlimited or however things go uh, on Amazon? What's the big reason why this is going to help them? I believe the big reason that that it'll help is because it literally goes through all four years of med school and, and hits on all the high points. Right? It was all the things that I wish I had known. And a lot of my classmates and people at other schools wish that they had known as well. If taking two hours to read a book can save you 200 hours down the line or even save you money in certain senses, because I talk about different things with that, I think it's a, a good read. I, I don't really always like to say, like, oh, I think you should. This is why you need to buy my book. I, I always like to say, well, if these are the things that you would like to learn, here's an easy way to access them. If you are a person that you want to learn how to do really, really well on step, you want to learn how to write a good personal statement, you want to learn how to get letters of recommendation, or you want to learn these things, and this is for you. So I think it's all about your goals. You know, If you want to do really well, if you want to crush med school exams, if, uh, if you want to know how to do that from somebody that's done it, then I think it's a book for you. Sounds good. And you are a fellow podcaster. How can uh, people listen to the other things that you're uh, giving <laughs> advice on and tell us a little bit about Convos with Cole? 
Yeah, so Chronicles with Coles is, is a podcast that I have. I interview people from all over, successful people from different walks of life. I always feel like you can learn something from talking to somebody. And people have, have all these different life stories, and they found out the things that work for them and the different stories that they have or their different routines. Like after a while, you start to kind of see habits with that a lot of successful people do. And you kind of tease out how you can use it in your life. For me, it's, it's been really well. Um, a lot of people enjoy it. I, I've spoken from to anywhere from um, from people that are on radio to presidents of NFL teams to you know just local local friends that are really successful in what they do. And and the thing is, you can learn something from from literally anybody and everybody. And I think with these conversations that we have on a daily basis, we should be trying to learn something from somebody. Or even when we have a patient. Every patient that I see, I try to learn something from them, whether it's something medical, whether it's though this is how you interact with the person or whether it's something about their life story. I always try to learn something from somebody else because I realize that I don't know everything, right? There's so much you can obtain just from speaking to people. That's one of the big things why I started the podcast. I wanted I want to tease out again the 80-20 rule and find out what things people are doing from other fields that help make them successful. And, uh, you know, I kind of just, just went with it. And it's, I think we're about 25, 26 episodes in. So, you know, it's Convos with Cole. It's available on iTunes as well as Google Play and Stitcher. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the How to Get a 250 on Step 1 uh, two-part episode you did uh, back in March. Yeah. Yeah, I also did that. A lot of people loved it. And again, it was a season that I wanted to speak to people that did very well in med school and figure out exactly what they did. And, and when you listen to it, I uh, sometimes play that the answer choices or the answer responses back to back to back. And you'll see uh, that a lot of people say some of the same things. So just take note on it. All right, man. Thank you so much. We'll be happy to have you back anytime. Man, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Just wanted to thank Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Live Outside off The Spark, their new album, about which Rao said, What I was trying to do with this album in marrying the personal and the political is to ensure that human vulnerability is laid bare and to not be afraid to speak about emotions. Plus, this album is a little lighter than what you heard previously with the song Anesthetist. At any rate, check out entershikari.com.